0: This is a generational battle like the McCarthyist attacks that were launched against educators. In the early 1950s, some 600 teachers lost their jobs, were fired by this witch hunt for communists. And this is happening again today with teachers who are teaching the truth about American history, who refuse to lie to kids. They're being targeted.
1: And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above. The show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel
2: Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area. I am wrapping up my summer break, and then I'll be in year 18 in the classroom. And this, of course, here is all the above, your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. Shout out to any of you who might be watching us or listening to us for the very first time. And shout out to those of y'all who've been with us for a minute. We hope you are all enjoying a fantastic summer. Jeff, I don't know if you realize this, but um, summer break is 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 wrapping up, man. It's wrapping up where we are back to school, like, hella soon. Somebody might be listening to this who actually already started the new school year, depending on where they teach. And just like that, it's, it's a wrap on summer, man. How, how are you wrapping up your summer?
1: Well, I tell you, Manuel, I'm gonna speak uh, on, on two different wavelengths right here, okay? And I'm okay. gonna first speak for those of us, uh, you know, district administrator types who uh, work year round. Big so, bucks, big uh, bucks. So, I don't know what you're talking about about summer summer break. I don't even know what that is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then second of all, for all my administrators out there, shout out to all the summer school principals uh, this year who are um, for them just beginning their their summer break right now, Manuel. Because all across the country, uh, summer school is you know has just closed or is about to come to a close. Um, And uh, that's a beautiful thing because it means somewhere in your life is an assistant principal or a principal who is about to finally get some summer vacation and it is well-deserved. So shout out to all of you across the country as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely for sure. And for those of you who don't go back to school until like after Labor Day or whatever and you still have a full month or more before you go back to school, I know this I know it can be a bit triggering to hear about back to school and you know, you're trying to enjoy your break. You're not trying to hear none of that like back to school stuff. So, apologies to you if you still have a long time before you go back. And shout out to you for that. Um but we here at All of the Above, we will be heading back to school very soon. So, things are going to get Quite busy, quite busy and quite complicated in our own professional sphere. So this episode here kind of kind of wraps up our, our last conversation of the summer with a super dope guest. And our next conversation with a super dope guest uh, might be, you know, mid-August-ish or whatever. So if there's a little bit of a gap there, uh, don't fret. That's just us trying to... Um, you know do the good work in in the field you know we are full-time full-time educators here at all the above but in any case jeff speaking of super dope guests who do we have today what is on today's agenda
1: well manuel as usual we got a good one for everybody and today uh we are super excited to be bringing to the show um a teacher uh from up in seattle He is a national voice on uh, the Black Lives Matter in school movement. He is um, a person who um, has edited books with Rethinking Schools. He um, is a prominent voice within the Zen Education Project. Um, You've seen him on um, PBS. You've seen him on Democracy Now. Um, He has a blog online. Um, We are talking about none other than Jesse Hagopian, Um, Ethnic studies teacher and just incredible advocate for students, for educators, for um, justice in education coming to us uh, from the Pacific Northwest, where we hope today um, they are not, you know, either 100 degrees or, um, you know, saturated in smoke, frankly. Um, But uh, yeah, we got the great Jesse Hagopian coming on with us today. It's going to be a dope conversation. You definitely don't want to miss it.
2: Yeah. Timely as well. Timely as a lot of educators head back to the classroom in the face of these national, the national backlash to, to all efforts related to racial justice. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I really look forward to hearing what he has to say about this moment and about how we as educators can continue to teach the truth and honest history, um, and, and move forward in the face of what is likely to be a pretty intense, intense fall in terms of backlash. But in any case, folks, up first we have our Do Now, where we take a look at recent news and headlines in the world of education. That's up next, stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at recent news and headlines
1: in the world of education. Jeff, how are we doing the Do Now today? Well, Well, it's my favorite way that we do the do now. We got uh, lexicon today. We're going to get into some vocabulary, discuss our key terms uh, for today's conversation.
2: All right. Summertime vocab. Let's do it. Jeff, the first term for today is mm. Uh
1: Well, that is a fascinating word right there. It makes me think of a 10th grader who's in the library. Bibliosoft, you know, bibliotheca sophomore, 10th grader in the library. Okay, I Final was wondering two. where the
2: 10th grader part came from. I was like, yeah. uh, <laughs> I get the biblio part. It's <laughs> like, why a 10th grader? Do, do do juniors not go to the library? Seniors? Um, but yes, you are you know. correct. Well, you it's not a 10th grader in the library, but bibliosoft is someone who is an expert in books and it is a synonym for librarian in this First story has to do with school librarians, Jeff. And, you know, this is uh, really fascinating, I think, information about the state of our school librarians in terms of how many we actually have out there here in this big year of 2021. So this story comes to us by way of Noble Ingram for Ed Surge. And he writes that as students sort through information online more than ever, the number of school librarians who could help them learn the fundamentals of research and media literacy have been quietly disappearing. He examines a new report called Perspectives on School Librarian Employment in the United States, 2009-2010 to 2018-2019. And this report is by Keith Curry Lance and Deborah E. Cakel of Antioch University, Seattle, which highlights an ongoing decline in the number of districts nationwide with school librarians. According to the findings, there were about 20% fewer librarians in the 2018-19 school year, than there were a decade prior, at least in these 13,000 districts that were part of this report. As of the 2018-2019 school year, about 3 in 10 school districts lacked even a single librarian. And, spoiler alert, the absence of these important educators isn't equally distributed. Smaller rural districts and those with higher proportions of English language learners, Latinx students, and low-income students were more likely to lack a school librarian. One of the authors of the report, Keith Curry Lance, who is a library statistics and research associate with the RSL Research Group, said, quote, What we knew from our work since 2018 is that we've been losing school librarians at a pretty alarming rate for a decade. But everybody's not losing their school librarians, just the people who can least afford to lose them. Notably, the researchers found that financial resources were not correlated to librarian staffing. They examined various levels of per pupil spending among districts and found that those that spent the least actually had better staffing than some that spent more. Keith Curry Lance says, quote, the explanation you get nine times out of 10 when you ask why did you cut your librarians is we couldn't afford to. We hated to do it, but we just didn't have enough money. Well, that doesn't line up with the per pupil spending data. Jeff, what what are your thoughts here? We are losing school librarians. Many districts lack even a single school librarian, and it doesn't seem to be correlated with the actual funding in those districts. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, man. Well, I have I have lots of thoughts and feelings um, in response to this article. First of all, you know, I'm glad they wrote it because I think honestly a major source of um, I guess we can call it misunderstanding about this issue is that most people I think in society when they think about a librarian have a, really a like antiquated stereotype in their head, right? They have the sort of image you see in movies, which is like a you know, maybe like sort of a late middle-aged woman with like the glasses with the chain on it, who's like telling the kids to shush all the time, right? And yeah. and like that is what they think of is like a librarian is a person who stands behind a shelf and tells the kids to shush, right? And and I think <laughs> that that is you know it, it, I, I, that trope has like value in Hollywood because it's kind of funny or whatever, but. In real life, I think it actually means that people are missing what it is that librarians do. And in fact, too, so much so that in some places, the term librarian isn't even necessarily used, right? Folks are called like media specialists or um, you know or other kinds of um, titles that maybe better capture the fullness of the role, right? Um, so first of all, nowadays we have so many resources that are digital and online and if if there's one thing we can be a thousand percent sure of in this day and age, of Manuel, is that our students need all the help we can muster in navigating the digital landscape of information to suss out truth from falsehood and <laughs> reliable from unreliable sources. Right? Um, librarians can be a huge, uh, you know, educator force in that body of work. There's also just the issue, Manuel, of um, Finding joyful ways for students to engage with text as a vehicle of learning, whatever it is they're trying to learn about, right? Like you're into skateboarding. Cool. Let's figure that out. You're into mystery novels. Cool. You like anime. Cool. Like whatever it is, um, it is difficult for teachers to be the sole owners of the work of really cultivating, in particular, like extracurricular joyful exploration of reading and text. And that is something we need a lot more of in this day and age. And the fact that we don't have librarians, and in many schools, we have either insufficient or non-existent libraries, um, you know, these are kind of intersecting um, challenges we're facing here. So I think, you know, I hope that what can come out of this is uh, some recognition. Of the importance of the true work and the full work that librarians do, what complements core academic instruction, of course, but also what is just about like helping kids grow and develop and find their passions and their interests, right, and learn to navigate a vastly more complex world of text and information than anyone under the age of, you know, let's say thirty, uh, or over the age of thirty, I should say. Ever encountered in our youth, right? And so, I hope that we see more librarians. I hope that you know university programs continue to produce and credential um, folks who are going into library sciences. Um, and we need to invest in um, libraries, uh, libraries, and librarians um, as critical aspects, like like a backbone of some of the like ways in which school serves as an important driver of democracy in our public discourse in this country. So, um, you know, shout out to the librarians out there. We've had on um, uh, Julia Torres in the past. I think she might be the only librarian we've had on the show, Manuel. I'd have to think, but we should have some more librarians on. That's, (laughs) That's what I'm thinking.
2: We should, but we're losing librarians according to this report. We don't have very many out there, Jeff. But no, shout out to all the school librarians out there. Shout out to one of the original fans of our show, now retired school librarian, Helen Moses. Shout out to my current school librarian, super dope, Miss Issa. Shout out to, of course, Julia Torres, the only school librarian who we've had here on all the above. And yes, I I co-sign everything that you just said. One of the aspects of this report that was most interesting or most surprising to me that was that it wasn't really necessarily correlated with per pupil spending. I think that's the easy excuse that most folks have, like why we why we don't have school librarians? Cause you know, we don't have the money to staff them, but this, this report actually details the fact that actually it is also a challenge of actually producing school librarians or producing candidates of uh, credentialed folks who have that library sciences background. And I, I don't know what the solution to that is when the headlines seem to suggest, and a lot of folks would just assume there aren't really many school librarians out there anyway. So why would I wanna pursue a career in being a school librarian if like those jobs are disappearing or, you know, this local school that I know doesn't staff one. So their school library just stays locked all day because they don't have staff in there. Like, why would I wanna pursue a job that seems to be, um, under supported, generally speaking, and I guess you could say that for a lot of a lot of positions in education. So, uh, so yeah, we definitely have to do more to to make sure that we have actual specialists in our school libraries across the country. Especially now that the problem isn't so much helping students access information, it's helping students sort through that information and separate fact from fiction and understand like. All that there is to understand with how how crazy our media environment is right now and how easy it is to 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 dupe people and to, to hustle people into believing something is true when it's really not. We need those school librarians, and we need properly staffed school libraries because, in my experience as an educator, the school library—even my experience back being a student—like the on-campus school library is just uh, such a dope place, like just mm-hmm. to be. Uh, a lot of schools are investing in, you know, wellness centers and other things on campus to to give students that sort of space to to just like be away from the the craziness of being a young person in schools these days. And the school library for a lot of folks that that is that that sort of idea of a wellness center for, for a lot of students, you know, somewhere they could go chill, dig through books, dig through graphic novels, find joy in that, like, as you know, as you spoke to. So we need, we need that obviously. And I think perhaps, perhaps we need that now more than ever, given the pandemic, given the crazy media environment that we are in, in terms of, you know, all the information that's out there and disinformation and misinformation that's out there, perhaps school librarians now are more important than than they had ever been possibly, I don't know, but yeah. we need to we need to do better by our school librarians. Shout out to all of you who are out there doing better and making that happen for, for our young people for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know you know what's making me think of Manuel is um, I think that libraries have been uh, treated very similarly under the the No Child Left Behind and kind of post No Child Left Behind era, uh, very similar to the way the arts have been treated which is um, the stuff that we couldn't test in a convenient way, right? That like Pearson couldn't make a standardized test for uh, is the stuff that we defunded, is the stuff that we deprioritize in terms of time, is the stuff that we, that we just marginalized out of, like what's acceptable to spend time on in school, right? And yeah. so, um, you know, similar to like recess and PE, right? Um, there, there's all this stuff where the value of it, isn't easily captured in a test, a single quantitative metric, and so we deemphasized those things, right? Yep. And Marginalized those things, and we are now paying the <laughs> the price of having made that decision for the better part of two decades, um, maybe longer. Uh, now, when we see like, oh, the joyful, you know, identity cultivating, um, calming places in schools that that help us. Uh, Feel good about being there to help young people feel like this is a place where I belong, where I I can find what I'm good at, where I feel supported and nurtured. Those places we have to rebuild in school, whether that's the band room or the library, you know, or the baseball diamond or whatever it is. Um, You know, the, the just because we can't test it, just because there isn't a letter grade we can give it necessarily doesn't mean it's not tremendously valuable. Right. And, and I think libraries are another great example of this that I hope we kind of are maturing in our understanding of what's important in school.
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, however, that just because we can't test it, I don't know, man, sounds like a challenge. Sounds like a challenge to uh, <laughs> Pearson and all the, the big time <laughs> testing companies. They're like, hmm. So he thinks uh... we could develop something and we can make sure it's, uh, you know, digital <laughs> and automated and all that good stuff.
1: Oh, yes. We'll see if you're proficient in going to the library or not this year, Manuel.
2: We could fit teachers with some kind of GPS tracking thing that counts each time they go into the library. And this teacher here underperformed. They did not consult their (laughs) school librarian once this this grading period. And yeah, it could happen. Ask Jeff Bezos. Like, you can measure (laughs) Uh, literally anything and drain every ounce of labor out of of your GPS. It's possible.
1: You won't need the GPS, Manuel, because the body cam that you're wearing to make sure you're not teaching CRT that is will true. already tell us if you're in the library or not. That is not.
2: true. Okay. And that library needs <laughs> yes. to have nothing but the Declaration of Independence, the mm. Constitution, and several copies of the National the se- Anthem and the, the Pledge, Pledge of Allegiance. And that's report. it, Jeff. <laughs> there better be hella flags uh, in there, too. Anyways, man, uh, we got another story to get to, man. Come on. What's, yes, what, we what do. We got, yes, we What we, we do. got next?
1: What we got next? What's the next term? All right man, well, next term up, I love this one. I got I got to um <laughs> I got to try and put a little inflection on it, man. The next the next term, man well is uh respect. Put some respect on it, man.
2: Um, did you say respect?
1: I said respect.
2: Respect. Uh this is Jeff, this is the school system here. We only accept proper we want the Queen's English in this joint. And it sounds like ah. you are, are not enunciating that correctly, sir. I'm going to have to mark you off on this uh, English assessment.
1: Uh, fair enough, man. Fair enough. Uh, shout, shout out to, uh, you know, one of the Internet's great, great meme champions, uh, Birdman. Put, some, put yep. some respect on it. Um, so this particular type of respect that we're talking about, man, well, uh, comes to us uh, literally from parents, Uh, In the state of California, who have uh, shown in a recent survey, um, a survey done, a mass survey done of families in California uh, in May of 2021 about their feelings about the school system, that overall, they're feeling pretty good, right? They're putting some respect on the name of those educators out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, feels good. So let's, uh, let's get into this, Manuel. This story is uh, from EdSource, brought to us by John Fensterwald. Shout out to John Fensterwald. Um, and here we go. The independent nonpartisan research center PACE at the USC Rossier School of Education recently, recently released their ninth annual poll on education. It surveyed 2,000 registered California voters um, who are representative of the state's demographics and party affiliation with an oversampling of 500 parents with children under 18 living at home. The survey was conducted in May of this year. In spite of perceptions of the public's widespread unhappiness with the slow reopening of schools last spring, most voters surveyed gave the highest marks in a decade uh, of polling to the state's public schools in general and to their schools in particular. Now, among the findings from this survey were a few key things. California voters gave the highest marks to schools and teachers since this poll was first administered in 2012. 62% said they would encourage a young person to become a teacher, which is fascinating. 53% of parents reported that their children's educational experience was worse than before the pandemic, but 33% of parents said that their children's educational experience was better than before. Democrats showed substantially more support for California public schools and, um, and uh, its teachers than did Republicans, 42% of whom gave that schools a D or an F grade. 82% of Democrats said that schools should spend more time teaching about the causes and consequences of racism and inequity, while just 54% of Republicans um, said or excuse me, while 54% of Republicans said schools should spend less time teaching that content. A strong majority of voters, uh, 69%, agreed with the statement that should a COVID-19 vaccine be approved by the Food and Drug Administration for school-aged children, that vaccine should be required for all students in California schools with allowable medical exception. And more than 8 in 10 voters agreed with the statement that every K-12 student in the state who wishes to attend school in person in the fall should be able to do so 5 full days a week. However, about 60% of respondents also said that there should continue to be an online option for K-12 students this upcoming year. So, Manuel, lots of fascinating info in this uh, survey coming out of uh, your favorite graduate school of education here in Los Angeles, the Rossier School of Ed at uh, USC. Uh, fight, fight on! Is that what is, what is Doesn't it? Doesn't Fight Doesn't matter Something like that. So, anyways, Manuel, what say you about this fascinating set of data coming to us? Man, are they actually putting some
2: respect on our names as teachers? Man, I, I was I was really surprised, honestly, because I guess, you know, maybe I spent too much time on social media, which is obviously a very toxic place to be. But it just seems like everybody hated teachers and hated schools and thought we weren't doing our jobs and we were indoctrinated kids, all, all that negative stuff. And it just feels like, you know, whatever little bit of teacher appreciation that we got at the start of the pandemic seemed to have like totally faded away. So it was really interesting to me to see that like the majority of folks in California actually feel really good about, um, about what schools were able to do during the pandemic. And especially since these were higher marks than before. So like, that, I mean, honestly, that shocked me that like parents are, are feeling better about their their local schools and schools across the state than even before the pandemic. So that that is a bit of appreciation that I definitely as a classroom teacher fully appreciate. I appreciate that folks seem to be aware of the the just challenges that teachers had to face and that schools had to face this year and just like the struggle of reinventing our pedagogy, reinventing our practice in the middle of a pandemic and doing the best we can. I super, super appreciate the folks uh, from the survey showing that like they appreciate that. Like they, they, they see that we did the best that we could. And a few numbers jump out at me specifically. And one is that in terms of the the quality of their child's learning and education during the pandemic, not surprisingly, most people said it it wasn't as good as before the pandemic, because obviously we're not in person or we weren't in person for most of the pandemic. And uh, 53% said like, you know, the the pandemic schooling experience wasn't as good as uh, the pre-pandemic schooling experience. The surprising number to me though, is that 33% of folks said actually it was better than what was there before. And, you know, we obviously we've talked about learning loss and all that stuff. And I still get the sense that a lot of folks out there kind of roll their eyes when educators like us say that for a lot of students, being home with a loving adult is better than being in a school environment. A lot of folks just roll their eyes like, oh, you can't possibly think that they learned as much much, or you can't possibly deny that they didn't learn. You know, and it's just like um, here we have 33 percent. So one in three parents said actually it was better than the in-person experience. So what we, it should be like that right there to me should be a full stop in like, why are one in three folks saying that it was better to have their kids learning from home than like what their experience was in school before the pandemic? Who, who are these 33%? What about Staying at home was better. So was it the you know the things that we've discussed on the show several times? Was it the you know the the racism and inequity and, and police on school uh, on on uh, kids and curriculum that doesn't reflect their lived experiences? Was it all that stuff? And, and parents were like, you know what? It was nicer just to have them at home with me, where I could love and support them, and they don't have to deal with all that. Or was it you know something else? I don't know. But thirty three percent, one in three. So for everybody out there, especially educators who are still on that learning loss trip like think to yourself, okay, one in three California parents surveyed in this, you know, in this uh, poll here said their students education, learning from home during the pandemic was better than their education before the pandemic in person there, that to me is a shocking amount. Um, Also very surprising here to me is just the number of folks who say like, yeah, that, that vaccine should be required. Like once it's fully FDA approved and all that stuff, 69%, 69%, that's, that's a lot of folks who think it should be required to go to school. I don't think that requirement is gonna come Anytime soon, uh, certainly, because it's become so politicized. But you know that that was also surprising to me, and to see that you know the differences between what Democrats think about teaching about race and inequity, and what Republicans think—that's you know that's on par. That's what I would expect. But this this survey was from May, and according to the survey. 53% of Republicans in California said schools shouldn't teach as much about that. I wonder if that number has gone up since it's been a summer of Fox News with their culture war as like their top headline of the summer. I wonder if more Republicans in California are now on that whole like, oh, wait, no, these kids, these schools are indoctrinating them. We got to stop talking about race. I wonder if that number has changed since May. I would expect that it probably had. But in any case, Jeff, what, what about you? What are your thoughts on on what this poll has has shown us?
1: Yeah, I, I think what is gratifying about this data to me, Manuel, is I think folks are responding to this survey with recognition for just how challenging last year was. A piece of that probably comes from folks who were parents who were at home with their kids who were like, oh, my God. <laughs> it." Is, it is really hard <laughs> to educate my one child at home, let alone a room full of 30 of them or 35 of them that cycles every hour for six yeah. hours a day, right? Um, so I think to a certain extent, there's maybe just some like empathy building around the the rigorous work that it is to educate students in school, right? Um, and so I appreciate that um, coming from... Families. On the other hand, Manuel, your, your point about like one in three and what's up with that, to a certain extent, I'm actually not at all threatened by that, okay? Because in the same way that uh, the adults who got to stay home from work, a lot of them are like, well, I'd rather work from home, right? Like, yeah. it is, I, if I can get the same things done that I need to get done, right? And I'm, yeah. you know, sort of progressing professionally the, the, the way I want. Why would I go sit in the car or go stand outside when it's cold and raining or hot and sweaty or what? You know, like why wouldn't I just like roll out of bed? And like hop on Zoom, right? Yeah. When I need a break, I can go use my bathroom, not some like nasty public restroom. I can, uh, you know, go for a walk in, you know, in the middle of the day, or I can have lunch at home and not have, you know, like just sort of um, whatever someone else is serving me, right? Like th- there is, there's a lot of stuff that's good. And frankly, if you layer on top of that with, um, with children, most of whom would have been at home with a loving adult of one form or another right a parent a family member a neighbor a whoever um and getting much more close to one-on-one attention than the 30-on-one ratio that's present in most public school classrooms so if you think about that i'm like it's a no-brainer that this is going to be a positive experience for a lot of people now we have to remember that two out of three people <laughs> said the opposite, okay? So that is still a vast majority, right? And I think that's reflective of the fact that, like, it's really hard for parents to be working at home and caring for kids. And it's really, um, it was really compromising this year that kids lost the social experience of yeah. being in school. And so, you know, I don't think that this data represents a threat to public school or necessarily even like a condemnation of public school. I think it offers us a lot to learn about, right? Like what should we do in response to this data? That's a different thing than like, oh my God, something, you know, something bad is happening, but more just like, what can we learn from it? That's that's where my mind goes.
2: I don't know, man, 33%, to me, that's a lot. And it was like 52% or just over 50% who said it was actually worse So that means like, you know, of all the folks who experienced pandemic schooling, just over half said, okay, yeah, this was worse than the in-person stuff. I I would have thought it'd be higher than that because it's so difficult, it was so difficult, the pandemic schooling part. So, you know, for 33% to say like actually it was better and then, you know, a portion of folks to, I guess, be neutral on it, I don't know. I don't know, that was surprising to me. But in any case, overall, I'm just so pleased that this many folks seem to acknowledge and have to to your point have some empathy for what teachers and schools did last last spring so we'll see what this fall brings we'll see how those feelings change depending on you know what the the context of of schooling is this this school year since the pandemic is far from over but yeah good stuff there good stuff there wow jeff that was that was two stories that had nothing to do with um or very little to do with um race and, and cultural Marxism and all that good stuff. Jeff, look at us, look at us avoiding those conversations. What's on the seminar again? What are we talking about?
1: Oh, uh, <laughs> communism, critical race theory. <laughs> critical <laughs> race theory. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, no, man, in all seriousness, we got a dope guest coming on today. We For have sure. Jesse Higopian, um, ethnic studies teacher, organizer with Black Lives Matter at School Movement, um, coming to us from Seattle. Um, who is going to be digging into these really important questions uh, with us, Manuel. We are in yep. the midst of a straight-up war uh, around the, the teaching of truth in public schools, and um, Jesse is certainly on the front lines of that, um, of that fight and going to be digging into us with it as we gear up for an upcoming school year where many states have now outlawed the teaching of truth or are trying to outlaw the teaching of truth. What should we do about it? So Jesse's gonna help us unpack that. Stick around folks. You definitely don't want to miss it.
2: Jeff, Jeff, man. Why why are you buying my style, man? You got the same shirt I I have on.
1: Yeah, your style. I I been had this shirt, man. Like I told you I was wearing the blue shirt today.
2: Dude, you got a lot of blue shirts. You wear a blue shirt down (laughs) here every day. You didn't say you were gonna wear a teach the truth shirt. I'm wearing my Teach the Truth shirt. Why are you trying to be like me, man?
1: Hey, listen, man. I went to aotashow.com slash support, right? Went to that merch store. Got all the good, all the above show gear, all of it. Right there, one button, no problem. aotashow.com slash support.
2: Well, damn, that's the same place I went to get mine. So yeah, that's coincidence, coincidence. <laughs> aotashow.com slash support. Hit the button. Get some dope AOTA show merchandise.
1: Yeah, yeah, man. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you here with us today, and we have just an incredible guest here with us. Um, Jesse Hagopian coming to us all the way from Seattle, Washington, um, ethnic studies teacher, uh, an educator who's been at the forefront of certainly what has become a national conversation about the teaching of truth um, in America's public schools. Welcome Jesse to all the above. I appreciate you all having me on today.
0: Looking forward to the conversation for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, folks, let's tell you a little bit more about Jesse. Um, He is a high school ethnic studies teacher in Seattle, an editor for Rethinking Schools magazine, director of the Black Education Matters Student Activists Award, and a campaign organizer for the Zen Education Project's Teach the Black Freedom Struggle. He is the co-editor of the books Black Lives Matter at School, An Uprising for Educational Justice, Teaching for Black Lives, Teacher Unions and Social Justice, and the editor of More Than a Score, The New Uprising Against High Stakes Testing. Jesse is the recipient of the 2019 Social Justice Teacher of the Year Award from the Seattle Public Schools Department of Racial Equity, and his commentary on education and race has been featured in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, PBS NewsHour, The Progressive Magazine, and my personal vote for America's best news source, Democracy Now!, among other places. Jesse, uh, so great to have you here and I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question.
2: Yeah. Super dopeness in the building, Jesse. Thank you so much for taking time out to be here on all of the above. Uh, we really, really are fans of your work and appreciate appreciate what you've been what you've been doing for for years, really. Uh, so thank you, thank you again so much. And the the big story in education, it seems to be this for this summer at least, is this wave, this this backlash to to the you know quote unquote conversations that we we're having last summer. So we we see these bills uh, progressing through state houses at, at last count. I think it's something like twenty. 26 26 states have introduced or passed legislation to severely restrict what teachers can teach about. Racism and sexism, and to to ban so called uh, critical race theory, which which you know clearly isn't um, being framed precisely or correctly by the folks who are so up in arms about it. And as history teachers, you know, I, I teach history uh, here in in the Los Angeles area, and I think for history teachers, it's pretty obvious why why this is all nonsense and why this is this is problematic. But we would love to hear your assessment about why these laws are are
0: particularly dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, I know you're feeling this as a history teacher, right? Yeah. It, it's like, what? They're going to ban the teaching of structural racism? So does the right wing really want to ban teaching about the Constitution? Because if if we remember correctly, the Constitution said Black people were three-fifths of a human being, so I guess we can't even talk about the founding documents anymore. <laughs> Is that what they want? Right. I mean, it's so absurd. And outrageous, uh, and and it's dangerous for a lot of a lot of reasons. I would say, you know, the Republican Party has made the attack on teaching about structural racism the centerpiece of their attempts to regain power in the 2022 and 2024 elections. So I think that this is really shaping up to be a generational battle, right, akin to how the struggle for desegregating schools, uh, was undertaken, um, or in the civil rights era, you know, this is a generational battle, like the McCarthyist attacks that, uh, were launched against educators in the early 1950s, some 600 teachers lost their jobs, were fired by this witch hunt for communists. Right. And This is happening again today with teachers who are teaching the truth about American history, who refuse to lie to kids about structural racism and sexism and other forms of oppression. They're being targeted. There's a teacher in Tennessee who was fired from their job for assigning a ta Coates essay and letting the kids watch a poem. that was about white privilege and had a cuss word in it, right? I mean, let's be real here. This is outrageous. Uh, there have been teachers who received physical threats for saying that they're going to refuse to lie to kids about the truth of this history. Uh, and, you know, at the Zen Education Project, we've launched a petition that says, I will refuse to lie to children about structural racism and sexism and heterosexism and all forms of oppression. And the right wing has published those names and is encouraging people to target these educators around the country. But I think there's something even more dangerous that they're attempting in this battle to restrict what kids can know about our country. Because I think that today's struggle against the GOP's bills banning the teaching of structural racism is not just a struggle about education, but it's a struggle about the entirety of what kind of society we're going to live in. It's about whether having a multiracial democracy is still even a goal that's espoused in our society. It's about a struggle over whether the past will continue to be remembered at all, or if it will finally be thrown down the memory hole in service of maintaining white supremacy and the concentration of power in in just, you know, a tiny minority billionaire class, right? And so we have to be able to teach the truth and that the legacy of what happens when you build a country on enslavement of African people, on genocide of Native people, on the disenfranchisement of women. We have to be able to tell that story so we can understand why the average white family today has 10 times the amount of wealth as the average black family. We have to tell that story so we can understand why black women are dying at three times the rate of white women in in childbirth, right? Or why, you know, attacks against Asian Americans, have skyrocketed in this, in this country, right? This is the legacy of structural racism in our country and we refuse to lie to kids about it.
1: Yeah, definitely uh, appreciate your words there, Jesse. And uh, so much of that resonates with, you know, um, I, it's been a while since I've been in the classroom, but in my, you know, in my heart, uh, you know, I was um, a social studies teacher and specifically uh, a teacher of US government. And so much of what you said there, I think, just you know, strikes at the foundations of of what we want our government and our public discourse um, in this country to be. Um, to to that end, Jesse, um, at a June twelfth uh, Teach Truth National Day of Action uh, in your city of Seattle, um, you gave a speech that stated the following: um, While today's racists may not be so bold as to ban the reading of the word as they did for my ancestors, they do want to ban the reading of the world. Now, we're curious if you could tell us a little bit more about kind of where you were going with that. So what what does the reading of the world mean to you? And why are the opponents of the teaching of truth in this historical moment, um, you know, waging this fight right now?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I want to break down what i mean by the reading of the world but first let me say a word about what i was talking about at that speech in terms of how my ancestors uh were banned from reading the word and i think people should know that the first anti-literacy laws were enacted after the stono rebellion and so it became illegal because Black people were resisting and fighting back, it became illegal for them to read and write in this country. And yet, Black people risked everything to continue their education, right? So we know they uh, engaged in a practice called stealing a meat, and they would sneak off plantations and teach each other to read and write at great risk. Right? If you were caught being literate, you could be whipped, beaten, maimed, and killed right? because they were highly worried about what would happen when people used the written word as a way to resist. Right, When they could read and write, it gave new tools to struggle against slavery. And in fact, those tools helped produce some of the greatest abolitionist newspapers that were distributed and helped agitate to end slavery and was critical and decisive in making the civil war about the ending of slavery. And we know that our ancestors in the wake of the civil war in the reconstruction era, black folks built the public school system across the South when there had not been one before. And this was of immense value, not only to black folks, but to poor white people whose kids had never been in school either. And they had they had integrated schools in the South in the 1860s, right? Where you had white and black kids sitting next to each other learning together before the terror of the Ku Klux Klan came raining down before the the government abandoned reconstruction and turn their back on former enslaved people, right? But of course our people didn't give up, right? And the long black freedom struggle has always included a fight for education. And so in the civil rights era, you know, you had groups like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee building the freedom schools across the South. And the final exams of the freedom schools was not some meaningless multiple choice test, uh, but it was registering to vote or organizing other people into, into SNCC. You have the Black Panther Party Liberation Schools uh, and the Afrocentric schools that, that flourished in the 1970s. And you know today we have a Black Lives Matter at school movement that tripled in size this last year. And, you know, many other organizations and groups fighting for racial justice and education. And I think that's really what's scaring the racists today, right? The racists of the past were frightened that we could read and write. Today's racists will concede that they will allow us to read and write but they definitely don't want that literacy to be in service of understanding the world. And that's what I mean uh, referencing Paulo Freire's concept, right? Uh, The author of Pedagogy of the Oppressed, who talked about the importance of learning how to read the world, meaning understand our society so that we can change it, right? Not just to feel enlightened, but to make structural changes because we face some of the greatest problems in our world has ever known, right? I mean, if we lived in a in a utopian society, maybe education could could be about something other than solving problems in our world. But in this world, where you have more Black people behind bars than were enslaved on plantations in 1850, in this world, right, where one in three women Say they've been sexually assaulted. Uh, in this world, where you have like five people have as much wealth as the bottom 3.5 billion people on the planet, right? In this world, where scientists tell us that if the if the climate increases by three degrees, it will be runaway climate change that's irreversible, and we're already seeing wildfires increasing. It was 108 degrees here in Seattle this summer, Uh, all-time record. Uh, We have real problems in our society, and our students need an education that's in service of helping them read the world so they can understand it, so they can change it, so we can survive as a species, right? And, And those are the real high stakes, not the ones on those meaningless multiple choice tests. Man, that's a word right there. That's facts on facts on
2: facts. And we happen to love facts here on all the above. And, you know, in in the face of what's happening now, I guess the 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 question on a lot of educators' minds is like, okay, so what what do we do? So you reference the pledge to teach the truth and the importance of doing that, and I think a lot of us educators, some of us are in states that aren't aren't going to pass one of these bills like I teach in California California isn't likely to pass a bill like this however these battles will be happening at, at school boards uh, no matter where you teach there's probably going to be parents who are calling or worried about you know this this text that you assigned the teacher that you reference who who was fired for assigning that essay in, in that, that uh, video. That was a current issues class. Like if any class should be diving into current issues, it should be there. And he was fired for that. So, so like, what do we as educators do, whether we are in one of these states or, or not? Like what, what is the move now?
0: How do we, how do we fight back against this uh, move to ban the truth? No, that's such an important question. And the points you made about how it's going to affect us all, I really want to drive home because yes, this bill has passed in seven states. Mm. Right. So in in some places like Iowa and Idaho and Texas and Florida and and Tennessee, in some places, it's already illegal to teach the truth about structural racism and sexism in this country. In 26 other places, uh, the legislation has been proposed and we'll see what happens. But in every state in this country, it's having a chilling effect on what educators teach. So you know, we heard stories from people who uh, were planning on adding books from Alice Walker to their curriculum. And, you know, in the wake of the uprising of 2020, in the wake of the the killings of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, you know, an incredible resistance to racism and, and this Black Lives Matter movement exploding, so many more educators began adding a real conversation about race into their curriculum for the first time, and now we're hearing reports like, "Oh, I'm going to pull that Alice Walker book from my curriculum because I'm worried about the themes that will come up and the discussions about race and racism that will happen, and then maybe I'll come under attack." And that was precisely the goal of the Republican Party in uh, promoting this kind of. Uh, divisive bills that they say are ironically to end divisiveness in education. Uh, and, And so they have a chilling effect even in places where the bill isn't passed. And so that's why we have to fight back, right? And we've launched the hashtag teach truth campaign coordinated by the Zen Education Project and the Black Lives Matter at School Movement. And people can go to the, those websites and learn more. Uh, but we had our first really incredible day of action on June 12th and hundreds of teachers across the country uh, rose up and went to sites, historical sites to hold their rallies to teach truth. And these were sites that we could not teach about if the bill passed in our state, right? So in my home city of Seattle, we met at Medgar Evers pool, right? And we talked about how we couldn't even tell the kids who Medgar Evers was if this bill passed here, the NAACP president who was assassinated, right? And then we marched to the free healthcare clinic that the Black Panther Party had started. And we looked at the legacy of the Panthers and and talked about the free breakfast program that they launched that became the breakfast program in the public schools in the United States. And we couldn't even talk about where the kids' breakfast is coming from at school in the morning if this bill passed, right? And many people across the country found incredible historic sites in their communities that they refused to hide from, from students and that was a powerful day and we're building on that action. On the weekend of August 27th through the 29th we're calling on educators to launch the new school year with similar actions. Find a historic site in your community that's related to the Black freedom struggle or that's reveals something about structural racism uh, or other forms of oppression and hold a speak out. Invite students, parents, educators, community members to talk about what's at stake in this battle for the truth and education. And we have another really important day of action I wanna tell you about because on October 14th, Black Lives Matter at school has called for educators to engage in teaching about structural racism all across the country and that's George Floyd's birthday. And if there's any day, that educators should feel emboldened to be able to speak the truth about the impact of structural racism. We hope it's that day. And we also know that educators in states where the bill has passed banning the teaching of structural racism are engaging in civil disobedience on that day. They may be engaging in civil disobedience by teaching the truth and refusing to lie to kids. But we also know the power of civil disobedience and how it was lunch counter sit-ins and freedom rides that ignited the civil rights movement across the South and helped bring down Jim Crow segregation. And we hope that courageous educators across the country teaching these lessons about structural racism on George Floyd's birthday will help ignite a new struggle to make sure that every kid gets to learn about their culture and backgrounds in school and that we can begin telling the truth in this country's schools
1: yeah uh love that that idea jesse october 14th uh is going to be a big day and we'll, we'll make sure to uh share you know the news and social media posts about that uh leading up to october 14th um here on all the above for sure um I also want to circle back a little bit, uh, Jesse, because you mentioned uh, the organization Black Lives Matter uh, at school um, a couple of times there, and uh, you know when I've heard you write about or speak about um, Black Lives Matter at school, you you typically make reference to some of the the things you've, you've mentioned here today around kind of the you know the history of. Um, uh, of creation of public schools during Reconstruction, the you know the Black Panthers um, uh, work with free breakfast, and you know the Freedom Schools of the '60s and that sort of thing. I'm um, if you can just share with us a little bit about, uh, and maybe especially for folks who are familiar with the kind of ubiquitous nature of the phrase "Black Lives Matter" in American life today, but maybe not so familiar with the Black Lives Matter at School movement. Um, you know, tell us a bit about what that movement is about. How, if at all, is it connected to the larger um, Black Lives Matter uh, movement or not? Um, and just give our, give our audience maybe some context about that um, organization and kind of what it means and what it's working towards. Yeah,
0: for sure. So Black Lives Matter at School really got started in 2016 in Seattle in my hometown. Um, There was an elementary school, John Muir Elementary. And this was the summer after Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were killed. And those brutal viral videos were traumatizing a lot of people and a lot of students. And so these courageous educators at John Muir Elementary School wanted to celebrate their black youth, starting in September, right when school came back, not waiting for Black History Month, right? And so they partnered with a group called Black Men United to change the narrative, and Deshaun Jackson there. And they partnered with the PTA, and the art teacher, Julie Trout, an amazing art teacher, designed a t-shirt that said Black Lives Matter, we stand together. The picture of a tree and the many branches coming down into the trunk as a symbol of solidarity. And the faculty were gonna wear the shirts and the parents and faculty were going to stand out front of the school and high five the kids on their way into school that day and hold an assembly uh, to celebrate black history in September there. And then the media found out that teachers were going to wear shirts that said Black Lives Matter. And right-wing news sources began publicizing this. And then the school started getting hate mail. And then one particularly hateful person made a bomb threat against an elementary school just because the educators there wanted to affirm the lives of their Black kids. And so the school district officially canceled the event. And they brought in bomb-sniffing dogs that morning to see if the threat would be carried out. And to, to the great credit of that community, the educators and, and some of the families showed up anyway and did the event, but it was smaller than it would have been. And that hurt my heart. And my friend, the great Professor Wayne Al's, uh son, went to that school and he put me in touch with those teachers and we brought them to the social equity educators caucus meeting and we asked them how can we support you and we knew that we needed to do more than just pass a resolution in our union saying they'd done the right thing because we knew that if we really supported them we would all wear those shirts to school that said black lives matter and so we picked october 19th as black lives matter at school day And we passed a resolution that called on every educator in Seattle to wear that shirt to school. And, you know, then we were really worried because the resolution passed. But then what happens if only a handful of teacher wears the shirts on that day? That would send a message to Seattle's Black youth as well. So then we had to get organizing, And we got uh, involved with the NAACP and the Seattle PTA and black student unions. And we held press conferences and we organized t-shirt drives. We began selling the shirts first by the ones and twos, then by the dozens, then by the hundreds. Come October 19th, we had sold over 2,000 t-shirts and a lot of schools had made their own shirts so that we were somewhere around 3,000 educators out of the 5,000 in Seattle wearing the shirts to school. It was just this eruption of struggle and solidarity and many teachers uh, took the occasion to teach about institutional racism and the long black freedom struggle and the black lives matter movement today and then the amazing educators in philly they saw what we had done and they took it to a whole nother level they organized a week of action that same school year and they broke down the 13 principles of the Black Lives Matter Global Network into teaching points for each day of the week. An incredible educator there named Tamara Anderson came up with that idea, and they developed lessons around those 13 principles for each day of the week that they engaged their students in. And then uh, at a national education conference, Free Minds, Free People, educators from all over the country got together and organized for the next school year to make a national week of action. And so then in the following school year, we had the first national week of action. We developed four demands of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, black lives matter at school movement so we said we want to end zero tolerance discipline and replace it with restorative justice we want to hire more black teachers we want to implement black studies and ethnic studies in in every school and we want to fund counselors and not cops and that's because 14 million children go to a school in the united states that has a police officer but is missing one of the following a nurse a school psychologist, a counselor, right? And this is an outrageous set of priorities that really shows that our education system is more invested in locking children up than unlocking their minds, right? And that's really what the Black Lives Matter at school movement is about. It's just a grassroots coalition of of educators and students and parents around the country who are fighting to end structural racism in education in our broader society? Yeah, I love and, that. Shout out to. I, I oh, should go ahead, say go ahead. that the first week of February every year is Black Lives Matter at School week. So every educator can teach to those 13 principles and uphold those four demands during that week. And then this year we developed a new framework called the year of purpose. So it's not just that week of action, but now every month of the school year has a different day of action that you can get involved in black lives matter at school. Dope, dope.
2: Shout out to you and everybody who's part of organizing that, going all the way back to John Muir Elementary School. And um, yeah, that's super dope. The the high school I happen to teach at is also named John Muir, John Muir High School. And we are the alma mater of uh, Jackie Robinson and Octavia Butler and, and Rodney King and a lot of folks. So we definitely know the struggle and we uh, wanna shout out everybody who's part of that organizing. And um, especially I think this year, especially in light of all that's happening nationally uh, around these bands and all that, I think that that organizing is particularly important. Now I have here my copy of Teaching for Black Lives, which you, I don't know if it'll show up on camera very well, but you co-edited this with, with Wayne Al, and there's Jeff holding up his copy. Uh, you co-edited this with uh, Diane Watson and, and Wayne Al, and it's a fantastic collection of, of essays and articles and, and lesson plans and, and a whole lot of brilliance within this. So we definitely want to encourage anybody who doesn't already have a copy to uh Copy. Get your copy. We'll put the link under this under this episode. But within this, you include James Baldwin's fantastic uh, talk to teachers from 1968. I want to read a, a piece of that. A piece of what Uncle Jimmy wrote back then, over what about 58 years ago? And he 1963. I'm sorry. And he he wrote, quote. One of the paradoxes of education is that precisely at the point when you begin to develop a conscience, you must find yourself at war with your society. It is your responsibility to change society if you think of yourself as an educated person. Now, here we are, nearly 60 years later. Uh, we wanted to ask you, what does that mean to us here now in this moment, in this moment of backlash, in this moment of you know, so-called cultural wars and all of that? What are, your,
0: what are your thoughts on Uncle Jimmy's words there? Yeah, I love that quote. I love that speech. And I think that the paradox that Baldwin points out is really profound. He's saying that a real education allows you to understand the society you're raised in, but then when you receive that education, it will lead you to question the very education that you're receiving. And it will lead you to question the society that you you live in. And so he's saying that for it to be a genuine education, it also has to be about changing society. Something I think Paulo Freire would, would agree with, right? And that's what really scares the proponents of these bills so much. That are banning the teaching of structural racism. They fear that students might not be content to just learn about the inequality that they're experiencing. And they might actually start taking action as they did during the great uprising in 2020, as they did in the civil rights and Black power era when students shut down college campus after college campus after college campus demanding black studies and ethnic studies programs including my dad who was part of the uprising at University of Madison Wisconsin when they had a student strike and won the black studies program there right they're they're afraid that students might learn about these inequalities and then might might act on them and i think um, their right to be scared because our youth are increasingly becoming active, and you know there's been all this talk about learning loss during covid and all this lamenting that our our black and brown kids are hopelessly behind and they'll they 'll never be able to to make up the education that they lost, but I would submit this to you all. I think our black youth not only have they learned a tremendous amount in the last year. They actually became the nation's greatest teacher when they linked arms and said, we aren't just gonna continue society as usual. The status quo is racist. We're getting killed out here and we're gonna stop. Uh, We're gonna grind the society to a halt and make you recognize us and see the systemic problems that we're facing. And we're going to uh, march in the streets and shut down business as usual. And they built what the Washington Post called the broadest protest in U.S. history in the summer of 2020, right? They became the nation's greatest teachers. These were young people, right? Oftentimes, high school students who are leading these marches uh, and these organizing efforts that have transformed the conversation in the United States about race and racism and, this is what's always scared races. So I say congratulations to people who are in the struggle for a better world. And, you know, educators have a responsibility to allow that conversation to come in the classroom. And, you know, the right wing howls that we're politicizing the classroom with books like Teaching for Black Lives uh, or the new one, Black Lives Matter at School. Uh, that I co-edited with Denisha Jones, uh, they, they, they worry that the Black Lives Matter at school movement is bringing politics into the classroom. But the reality is that students are talking about all these issues already, right? We know that these viral videos of police violence that kids are seeing, they're talking about it. Or viral videos of anti-Asian hate crimes, they're, they're talking about these things. They're talking about it in the hallways, on the playgrounds, in the school bus, at home. The question for us is, are we going to allow those conversations to come into the classroom and have a safe, structured place for our students to discuss their feelings and their observations about these things and to provide context, historical context for why these things are occurring, or are we gonna make education irrelevant to our students' lives? And that's the moment that we're at in the American public school system. And I'm so amazed and elated that so many thousands of more educators are joining the side of the black freedom struggle, are joining the side of social justice teaching and are helping to empower students in this struggle.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, power, powerful words there, Jesse. And um, you know, you're certainly uh, leaving us with a lot to think about. I think maybe um, you know most most pointedly there the idea that silence is also speech, and uh, lies are also a form of politics. And um, we certainly are are entering what is both perhaps a really dangerous and tenuous time. Um, in the history of education in this country, but also perhaps a, um, the precipice of a, a moment of great transformation and change as well. Um, so Jesse Agopian, thank you so much uh, for joining us today on All the Above. Uh, really appreciate your, your time and your words um, with us and our audience here. Uh, it's great, great to have you.
0: Uh, really appreciate being here with y'all. Thanks so much. I love your show, good luck with your work appreciate you appreciate you
1: yeah um jesse actually one last question uh or one last um opportunity here for folks who might be interested in following you or learning more about your work or uh the, the organizations you're affiliated with uh where can folks kind of connect with you online
0: well people can go to blacklivesmatteratschool.com they can go to the zeneducationproject.org they can follow my blog at Iamaneducator.com or
1: follow me on Twitter at Jesse D. Hagopian. Love it. Okay, well, we'll make sure to have those links um, as well uh, right below this episode, folks. Um, Jesse, thanks again. And uh, that's it for today's seminar, folks. Uh, We hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Next up is our class dismissed. Stay tuned. All right, folks, we have reached that time in the episode. It's our class dismissed, The time we like to kind of pause and give some flowers to folks out there doing good things in the world of education. Manuel, who do we got for today?
2: Yeah, so folks who've been listening to our class dismissed and have been following our show know that I've shouted out EduColor and mentioned the summer virtual conference a couple times, encouraging people to go and... Uh, that conference has come and gone. And I just wanna shout out everybody at EduColor who put that who put that on. I mean, that was really, really a fantastic, fantastic space and a, a very healing space and a very fantastic summer. We had we uh EduColor had a a student panel that was part of the day's offerings, and this student panel, man, these youngsters, speaking their truth about their experiences with with race and racism and inequity within the school system and their, their beliefs about what teachers and educators need to do to address some of that harm. It was just so fantastic. There are so many conferences, education conferences where like they don't have any student panels at all. And if they do have one, it's like just students who are like just speaking about a particular program and helping promote a particular program. And it's just like, you know, students who are just saying what the organizers want them to say. And in this case, it was just so great to hear from the young people. And of course, all the uh, all the other folks who had workshops and, and keynotes and all that, just fantastic, really good stuff. We can't stress it enough. I can't stress it enough. If you are an educator, uh, educator who cares about the issues that we talk about on this program, it's very important that you you find your community and AOTA family is, is one particular community uh, that we love having you be a part of, but we can't do this work in isolation if you are at a school site where you, you just feel like you're in a bubble there's there's nobody who quite sees things the way you see them and and it's just uh, that frustration and that, that difficulty man we can't we can't do this alone so definitely look for or reach out to educolor educolor.org and um, that's one community that you could definitely be a part of too to help make schools and our education system a a better place for, for all students, particularly those who have been marginalized and forgotten and ignored for so long. So shout out to Jose Wilson, Julia Torres, Yamil Baez, and everybody that was part of putting that on. Fantastic, fantastic stuff there.
1: Yeah, definitely. Big props to uh, the Edge of Color community out there. Um, love it, and man, well, I'll just tack on very briefly uh, to what you were saying. Um, just a little shout out to all the administrators out there, man. I, I mentioned this at the top of the episode, and just want to kind of hit folks with it again here, which is to say think a hidden toll of the difficulties of the last year that a lot of people may not have have seen is that the pandemic was really hard on administrators and uh administrators also often work year round or close to year round and so folks um, you know who were grinding all year don't get a lot of vacation um hopefully <laughs> administrators out there got some vacation i know here in la principals just came back uh just about a week ago now um to work and summer school is wrapping up so all those aps who are serving as summer school principal are just starting a couple of weeks off so take that that time to rest administrators out there we see you props for a great year's worth of work and um you know take care of yourself heading into this uh this upcoming school year which is going to have its own challenges so Um, props to our to our administrators out there as well Um, so folks thanks so much for joining us today we've come to the end of our episode it has been a great one Um, we really appreciate everybody who supports the show out there Um, please make sure you are liking us following us subscribing um, on all the platforms whether you watch or listen or both um, and make sure you share the show with, uh, with colleagues, friends, other folks who you think can benefit from it. Um, you can also support all the above by buying some of our swag. We got great t-shirts online. We got those Teach Truth uh, t-shirts uh, that have been flying off the shelves. All you got to do is go to aotashow.com slash support. Again, that's aotashow.com, just our website, slash support. Um, There you'll see the link to to get your swag or um, to subscribe to the show. We appreciate all the support you can give, folks. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.